0: The very last time of the summer, I will invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, where this morning we'll be wrapping up our journey through this book by looking at verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 24. And this is found on page 1163 of our Pew Bibles. So over the past several weeks, of course, one of the things you may have perhaps noticed along the way is that this book is full of word pictures and imagery that is aimed at teaching us about the church, who we are as this body. And each of these images, and there are plenty of them, each of these images teaches us something about the identity of the church as well as the mission or the purpose of the church. And so Paul uses these uh, throughout the book, and I'll, I'll just give a few. I have a few on the screen. This is by no means exhaustive. Uh, but it is sort of the main the main image, images that he uses. So he calls us adopted sons. We are adopted in Christ. And so that's our identity, but it also points then to our purpose. Our purpose, our end or our aim as adopted sons is to receive the full inheritance of God in Christ. And so we have the blessings from God, the promises of God that are now ours and that, that we receive as recipients. So secondly, we are the body of Christ. This is a major theme, a major image throughout this book, because one of the main ideas at play here, as we've seen, is the union that we share in Christ. We are one with Christ. And so as being one with him, one flesh, we are his body. And so as his body, our aim then is to grow up and to mature into him who is our head. This is what we're told to pray for in chapter four of the book, to grow up and to mature in our faith. Another image is that we are God's workmanship. I would say that this is the premier image of the book. We are God's workmanship, which is which means that our purpose then is to display and demonstrate God's power and his grace and his kindness before the face of the entire cosmos, the universe, the unseen and the seen realms. We are also the holy temple of God's presence where he dwells among us. And so that is our purpose to be indwelled and filled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul tells us in chapter 5 to not be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are a temple then, and that is our calling. And a fifth image, a major image, is being the bride of Christ. And so our purpose is to be one flesh with Him and to look forward to that future day when we will be with Him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We will be brought out to Him and revealed to Him in all of our grandeur and splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But while all of these various images get at our identity, as I said, I think that third one is really the main uh, image of the entire book. Our purpose here, as Paul tells us in chapter 3, is to display God's power before the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly or spiritual places. This is our, our calling as the church, to make known God's power, even to the evil forces of the world. So this then helps us to see that A final, a sixth image, we might say, that we are the army of God. And that's what we'll see here in chapter 6. And so in many ways, this final section of the book acts as sort of the summary statement, bringing together all the major themes and threads of the book and weaving them together into one final exhortation, which we might consider just a a rousing call to arms. We are called to battle, to fight against the work of the devil. And so here then, at least implicitly, he gives us this image, image of being an army, though that word is not said. Now at the outset of our journey together this this summer I mentioned that there are three major themes that we will want to keep our eye on. The first of course is the gospel. The second is the Jew Gentile hostilities between those two different people groups and thirdly it's the powers of the spiritual realm. And All of these get woven together in some ways, some more subtle than others, but all three of these themes are woven, I think, here in chapter 6 with a special emphasis on the third, the powers of the spiritual realm. God wants us to show his glory and his love over our spiritual enemies in the heavenly or spiritual places. And so in a sense then, the church's very existence is a matter of spiritual warfare. The fact that we exist at all is proof that God has conquered over evil and is continuing to conquer evil. But now that we are alive, we too are called to engage in this battle. That's our calling as the church, to take arms, a call to arms. It's not for nothing that in the historic Christian tradition, the church here on earth, the global church... uh, All throughout the the world is known as the church militant. This is classic terminology in the Christian church. Whereas the church that has now the saints who have died and gone to be with the Lord is often referred to as the church triumphant. They are in glory, but we are still here. So we are the church militant. And I like these two different ways of thinking about the church because when it all boils right down to it, we are in a war. And so the language of the church militant, I think, fits and helps to signal that. And there's likely no better passage in the Bible that expresses both the gravity and the truth of what it means to be in war than this passage here in chapter 6. And so as we now turn to read it, let's come before the Lord again to pray that he will be with us and guide us as we read. Our Father in heaven, we come before you seeking your light. Lord, you have called us from the domain of darkness into this kingdom of light. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would shed your light into our minds and hearts this morning as we read your word. May it be a lamp unto our feet, guiding us in our path as we take up our arms and engage in this war that you have called us to. We pray in our king's name. Amen. So now, brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Ephesians six ten through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Of all the many great interactions in the Gospels, of which there are dozens and dozens of course, one of the greatest and most interesting ones of the Gospels is the interaction between Christ and his disciples where he asks them, Who do you say that I am? He's taught them long enough, he has begun to reveal to them his identity, but now he wants to hear it. So he starts by asking, who do the people say that I am? And they give him a few things that they've heard people saying, but then he turns it and directs it at them. Who do you say that I am? This is the question of the Gospels, I think. It's, it sort of is the summary question that gets right to the heart of things. Who is Jesus? If that's the question then of the Gospels, maybe the question of our book here in Ephesians is who do you say the church is? In other words, what what comes to mind when you think of the church? What sort of memories or experiences or objects or maybe people do you think of and associate with the word church? For some of us, the idea of church may bring good things to mind. It may bring a sense of family and community and fellowship that we've shared alongside people for years and years of our lives. Or it might be the deep childhood memories of the animal crackers or apple juice. That's sort of what, one of my earliest thoughts of, of church and Sunday school. Or it could perhaps be all the, the memories of time spent in worship, celebrating communion and praising the Lord through song and through making our prayers known to him or through hearing uh, maybe a, hope, a helpful and hopeful sermon. But for others, the idea of church may bring to mind negative things. It may bring to mind pain or thoughts of anxiety or hurt or possibly even anger, right? Perhaps it may be the, the sort of deeply unwelcoming comments that somebody's heard on a Sunday morning uh, in passing. Or maybe it's the experience with the self-righteous person who thinks very highly of themselves. Or perhaps it's the wicked things we've seen and heard, maybe even with our own eyes in church that has taken place, corruption within the church. Or maybe uh, corruption being covered up in the church. So we've seen things, and it may feel like church is a hard place to be. Wherever we may fall when it comes to the church, then, I think that there is a sense of incongruity between what we know and think of as the church with what we read of the church here in the book of Ephesians. It seems very, very lofty and high and, and, and magnificent, the church. Maybe we have even good experiences, but it may not completely align with the church, as Paul tells us. He calls it the workmanship of God, as we've seen the holy temple of the spirit's presence and all we can do maybe if if we're thinking about it is to scratch our heads and wonder is this really the church that that, that, that I'm a part of paul do you do you really know what the church is have you seen the things i've seen in the church whether your thoughts are Of the church are good or bad, cherished or painful. I think all of us have to admit that in one way or another, Paul's high view of the church is a little bit incongruous or out of touch with what we have experienced in our lives, in our creaturely limited perspective of the church. But, brothers and sisters, I'd like to suggest that this is then more of a problem with us than it is with Paul. He's the one who I think is seeing it. Correctly. He's saying things from God's perspective. And so I think this is one of the reasons then that I like to visit old churches. When I travel, I like to go around and and check out old cathedrals or little tiny chapels. And this is something that, you know, I think Pastor Mark enjoys to do too, which has been part of his sabbatical. Uh, But for me, the reason I enjoy it so much is that it helps me to see what is fundamental to the church. It helps me to see then what is sort of extraneous to the church. And it helps me to to see the gloriousness of the church as it really is. Something far deeper and better than just my experience of animal crackers and apple juice. I I see scratches on pews. Or I see well-worn communion tables. Or I I see kneelers that have been used for a long, long time. Far longer than I've been alive. And all of these sorts of things bring to mind that the church is bigger than me. It's bigger than my three experiences of church and the three main churches that I've spent my life in. And it's so much greater and bigger than that. When I see all of these things, it helps me to see that the church is this ancient, historic, enormous body of saints from all ages and times and places that have been gathered by the Lord's grace from all nations and tribes and tongues into this magnificent body of Christ. And so, to put it simply then, for me, old churches function as a signpost, pointing me to the transcendent, pointing me to the beyond. That church is far bigger than my limited perspective, good as it has been. Just this past spring on our trip to England, Bailey and I went there in the month of March for just a week, and so we traveled around England, and of course, I dragged Bailey along into about eight or nine different churches along the way. I think for the most part she liked it. It wasn't horrible, I don't think. Uh, But one of the churches, which was one of my favorites uh, personally, was a church called Holy Trinity Headington Quarry. Now, it's not a very famous church, it's not even a very big church, and by British standards, it's not even an old church. It was built in 1848. That's pretty new as far as England goes, but it has one small claim to fame. It was the parish church of C.S. Lewis, and I know maybe you're getting sick of me mentioning C.S. Lewis at this point in the summer, but allow me one last time to mention him uh, here so we went to go and visit C.S. Lewis's home, which is called the Kilns, and had a great little tour. And we made the ten-minute walk then from his church to his house, or from his house to his church, and we found our way through the graveyard of the church, and we found his his grave, uh, which was, by the way, very, very hard to find. It was not one of the more magnificent graves. It was very subtle and very humble. And we then decided to uh, try the door. In England, most of these churches are are open during the day, throughout the week, and you can just pop in and see them. They're open to visitors, even if no one is in there. And so as we stumbled in, we did meet a man who was in there working on some of the pews or something like that. And he greeted us and decided to give us an impromptu tour. And so he took us, he heard our accents and he knew we were there for C.S. Lewis. So he took us right to C.S. Lewis's pew. And so naturally, of course, I took a picture. And so you'd be able to see a little bit of what we were seeing here. You can see in the first picture, that it's a small sanctuary. It may look big, but it's actually far smaller than our church here. And you can see the graveyard in the middle picture. And then it's not a very great picture, I'll admit. I'm not a photographer, but that little placard is actually on C.S. Lewis's pew, where he would sit. And he would sit tucked up next to one of the pillars of the church so that he could sort of hide behind it so as to not distract his fellow worshipers, who, at this time, he was a little bit kind of famous. His fame was growing, and so he wanted to just kind of be off to the side, hidden, so he could worship the Lord and not be a distraction to one another. But it was from this pew, and this is why I bring it up, this is not just a time of show-and-tell, fun as that would be. It was from this pew that something very interesting happened in C.S. Lewis's mind. Uh, he, maybe like some of us, myself included, he, his mind was wandering during the sermon on a morning in July of 1945. And so he was listening to the priest's sermon, but not really listening. And as he was sitting there, the idea for a book that we now know as the Screwtape Letters came into his mind. Letters written by a senior tempter or demon to his younger uh, protege, his nephew. And so it was written from Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape, to his nephew, Wormwood. And it was his aim then in this book to show the sort of psychology of temptation, but from the opposite side, from the side, from the realm of evil. Now, given the subject matter of the book, there could be hundreds of connections that we make between it and our text this morning here in Ephesians chapter 6, but one above the rest for me leaps out. So right at the start of the second letter of the book, Uncle Screwtape notes with, quote, grave displeasure that young Wormwood's first human patient has just become a Christian. But despite this less than ideal development, he advises Wormwood not to despair. He tells him to pump the brakes a little bit, don't worry. And he reminds him that many hundreds of adult converts to Christ have eventually walked away and fallen from from the fold. And so with this, he begins to explain a tactic for young, young Wormwood to implement and to try out. And so in essence, his plan is to try to get the patient to be overcome with disillusionment by the church, to be discouraged by the church. And so he talks about how this, young, this new convert will have all these great and lofty ideas of what church, the church is. And he'll sort of think of people as wearing these white toga robes because everybody's just perfect in the church. And so he says, you'll want to play on this. You'll want to lean into this. And so here is what he writes to, to young Wormwood in his own words. He says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patience sees is the half-finished sham gothic facade on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local barber with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him and sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily, he says, on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between the expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the pew. Work then on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. Now, there's obviously a lot to be said about this passage here from Screwtape. There's a lot of wisdom contained in it that we might reflect on in our time, but I love the first part of that quote especially, because in it we see that he recognized this sort of tacit distinction, this implicit distinction between the church as she truly is, objectively, terrible as an army with banners, he writes, and the church as all of us come to know her experientially and subjectively, which can often seem disappointingly mundane, boring, awkward, or maybe even painful. Nevertheless, Screwtape was right. Despite the fact that it's often hard for us to see it and to believe it, The church is truly that thing which is spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. And this isn't just some fancy or romantic way of putting it. It's the truth of the matter. I love that Lewis, speaking through Screwtape, puts it this way. For this is exactly what the church is. The church is this kind of army, a glorious multitude of spiritual soldiers rallied under the banner of Christ and of his love, called, as we see here in Ephesians 6, not to wage war against flesh and blood, but to wage war against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of the present darkness and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We fight then, not as lone rangers, going out to wield our swords against evil, thinking that we are going to do it all by ourselves, but we, fret, we fight as a united front. We are the army of God. That is our existence. And so, as we turn our attention now, sort of squarely to our text this morning, and jump into it, Uh, We'll see that it teaches that we are engaged in this war even now, whether we know it or not. And so we'll need to ask three important questions that I think Paul addresses here uh, that any, any army would need to ask in the middle of battle. And so the first question would be, who is our enemy? So who and what are the beings and powers against us in this fight? And secondly, what kind of armor do we have? What kind of equipment has the Lord blessed us with as we go out onto the battlefront? And finally, what is our strategy? What's the battle plan as we go and take up arms and wage war against our adversary? So as we consider the first of these questions, it's important to point out that Paul here is writing this, as he mentions, as a prisoner. Someone who is sitting with chains, most likely in the city of Rome at this point. And so he tells us, very interestingly and importantly, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul, of all people, would have had all the reason in the world to see the battle as being one against flesh and blood. He had all the reason to be angry and bitter and spiteful towards those who had mistreated him. him. Both the Jews, for they were the ones that that rioted in the temple and caught him and that had him arrested. He had been also uh, mistreated by Gentiles on his missionary journeys throughout Greece and through Asia Minor. And yet he tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against, instead the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we shouldn't fail to notice also in verse 11, just before that verse, in verse 12, he tells us that we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. So this gives us five different entities or powers that we are up against. The devil stands, of course, atop the hierarchy of the other four. And so given that I trust we're all somewhat familiar with who the devil is, I want to spend a few moments thinking about these other four powers that come to mind for Paul. And as we do, it's important to keep in mind that Paul doesn't go into too much detail here. If you look at verse 12, he's very quick about it. He's very brief. So he knew, I think, because of their former involvement with the cult of Ephesus, or cult of Artemis in Ephesus, he knew that these people were well aware of spiritual powers. He knew that they had a familiarity with these terms and these titles. And so his general goal, which is throughout this whole book, is to remind them of Christ's power over all of these powers that seek to harm the kingdom of God. And he tells them then here in chapter 6 with specific instructions how to resist them through the Lord's power. And so who then or what are the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil? I think the first and foremost and most important thing to say is that they are real. These are real powers. Evil, then, is real, and it's active, and it's at work, waging constant war against God and His kingdom. The fact that all of these terms mention in one way or another the idea of power or rule or authority uh, goes to show that these are forces to be reckoned with, forces to be taken seriously, not something to, to skip over, not something to take lightly. They are present and active and absolutely Real, but it's also interesting to note these words' background in the ancient context in which Paul was writing. And I'll keep it brief here because there's a lot that could be said. And if you want to pick my brain and talk with me, I'll be happy to load you with some books because there's a lot on this subject. Actually, Uh, lots of academic work has been done figuring this out. But all of these words, in one way or another, have. common usage in different books, typically magical texts that would have been used in ancient pagan cult temples, like the Temple of Artemis in in Ephesus, but also throughout the Greco-Roman world. And so these these words were not commonly used outside of those contexts, but given that people were so religious, they would have been fairly familiar with them. And also, some of these words, like authorities or rulers, these actually have some background in the Old Testament, as well, particularly in the book of Daniel, and then also in some uh, apocryphal books like 1st and 2nd Enoch. And so both Jews and Gentiles would have known what these different powers were, these different entities, and, and their identities. And so, thirdly, I'll say that my conviction is, is that such references are not just about wicked human structures or institutions. Some people, since the 20th century have tried to argue for this interpretation, saying that these are not sort of spiritual beings. These are mostly just uh, uh, how society works, and it's talking about the, the upper echelons of society and how things are are worked by the elites over against all the rest of us. But I think that this is to gravely misread what Paul is saying here. Paul is very clearly talking about spiritual forces, spiritual powers. And so speaking to this point, Dr. Michael Allen, one of my old professors, writes this in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, This passage seeks to draw our sight through and beyond earthly realities, above and past the empirically or the provably obvious pangs of this epoch. The passage here summons us to that at which the epistle as a whole aims, namely a spiritual or heavenly reading of reality. I love how he says this in this last line. In writing Ephesians, then, Paul is trying to get us to understand reality from above. Instead of just from below. So he wants us to see things as God sees them, for that's what they truly are. And so we must understand that the enemy is powerful, the enemy is unseen, and the enemy is real. We're not just up against corrupt people or corrupt institutions or human powers, as, as important and as powerful as they may be. We are up against spiritual powers and forces of our cosmos the universe, then, is not just us and God. That's the common view of most of evangelicalism today. There's us and God. Oh, and oh yeah, there's angels and demons, but we don't really focus on them. There's not much to be said on them, we think. And so it's just really us and God. Well, the Bible actually gives us a far more complex vision of reality than that. There are these several, many different kinds of forces. And there's all sorts of speculation which we won't get into but it's important to know that what we're up against is real and it seeks our ill so that's the answer to the first question who is the enemy the second question we must ask is what is our armor so paul list lists out six objects for us, which sort of cover us from head to toe, uh, spiritually speaking. So he tells us that we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, which, sorry, excuse me, and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. And so the whole sermons, I think I could just say, could be preached on all of these different items. In fact, one Puritan pastor named William Gurnall wrote a three-volume commentary which spans a total of 1,472 pages on just this armor of God. So a lot could be said. But in essence, Paul wants us to see simply this. God equips us for this battle We're not supposed to to think too deeply, I don't think, about each of these different pieces, so much as we are to reckon with them and make use of them. We are to understand what they are, of course, but we are to use them. That is the point, that we rely on what He has given us. And so He girds us then with His belt of truth, which holds everything together and in place. It keeps us to be full of integrity as we live in this world. He equips us with His righteousness as our brethren, breastplate, which covers over our hearts and our souls. So the righteousness of Christ covers over us. He rigs us with shoes that enable us to share his gospel. And so we are sent out to go and do this. But it's interesting, and we shouldn't miss the irony here. He calls it the gospel of peace. We are in war to go share the gospel of peace. That is interesting to note. And for When fears and doubts and and all of those kinds of thoughts kick in, causing us to wonder if it's even worth it, he gives us the shield of faith to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. And he outfits us with the assurance of salvation as our helmet, enabling us to remember whose we are and to stay protected from all that is thrown at us in the enemy's attacks. And he also finally issues us with his word as our sword is probably a reference to the word of god to the scriptures but also i i think you could argue that it's a promise from jesus that when we are facing persecution when we are put before courts and trials the holy spirit will give us the word to speak and so while each of these pieces of our heavenly equipment are fascinating on their own paul's point is clear use them Make use of them. Do not fail to use them. Do not think, A, that you're not in a battle, or B, that you have no need for them. You are not David. You are not to go out and to have no armor and to only use the sling. David is a a picture or a type of Christ. We are the fearful army waiting behind him, but we must take up our equipment and engage in the battle nonetheless. So we are in a war brothers and sisters. God's kingdom has come and we are in a real fight against this prince of this world as he's called back in chapter 2. And as Paul says in verse 11 here, the devil schemes. He thinks ahead. He works hard. He plans his attack. He is not just waiting idly by. And so this is not peacetime. This is wartime. In peacetime, when you are out in the forest and you hear the cracking of a branch behind you, you may think, no big deal. I, it, well, I wonder if it was a bird. I wonder if it was maybe some sort of uh, fox or some sort of coyote, maybe a bear. I need to be a little bit on guard, need to check over my my shoulder. But if it's in wartime and you're on the battlefield and you have, hear the crackling of a branch, you will immediately have all the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you will be able to fight with confidence. You will, your mind will be alerted awake. You will not take that as no threat, but you will take it seriously. This is the sort of mindset that we need to be in, spiritually speaking. We are in a war. And so this leads us then to the final question. What's our strategy? What actions do we take and employ in order to engage in this war successfully? So Paul scatters clues throughout this passage as, we, how, as to how we are to do this, but I think we can bring it all together in two quick points. The first, coming from the beginning of the passage, is to stand fast, to be strong, to stand in the might and power of the Lord, to rely then not on ourselves, but to rely on Him. So he says, starting in verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And to put on the whole armor of God. So put that on. That's also part of our strategy. That we may be able to stand, he he says, against the schemes of the devil. All of this then frames it. This idea of standing, which is used four times here in this passage. This frames the whole battle not so much as a battle of conquer, as a battle of resistance. We're not supposed to necessarily take ground. And so this brings up an interesting question for us. Isn't the kingdom of God spreading? Isn't it supposed to be being extended? Given that most battles are won by advancing, by going forward, why are we being called to stand fast and to resist? Why are we trying to protect what we have? So some Christians would use this language, I, I think, to reject the idea of Christian geopolitical dominance, saying that our fight is basically just to protect ourselves as the church from the advances of the devil to hold on to what we have, and that's good. But I'll be honest, I'm not convinced. While I'm not a fan of this idea of geopolitical dominance by any means, I think the best way to understand this resistance is to recognize that in his death and his resurrection, Christ was our victorious Lord. He conquered the world in his death and resurrection and so these evil forces remain but now they are trying to fight a battle of insurrection against the true lord of the universe who has dominion in our realm this is part of why we say that the kingdom of god is already but not yet christ is the true and rightful king in the world yet there are demonic insurrection insurrectionists fighting with all that they have against him, trying to overthrow him. And so it's no wonder that Paul calls us to to stand steadfast. They want it back. They want what Christ has taken back from them and reclaimed as his own. And so it's no wonder then on the final night before his crucifixion, our Lord himself encouraged the disciples with these words from John 16. In the world, you will have tribulation. He knows that they're going to fight a battle. But take heart. I have conquered the world. Now, we often think of this verse with the, a more common mo- modern translation, I have overcome the world. But actually, it's the Greek word for conquered the world. That is a proper translation of it. I have conquered the world. The world is now Christ's. So that's our calling then, to stand fast. But how do we do it? How do we stand fast and resist the schemes of the devil and of evil powers? Well, aside from putting on the armor of God, Paul completes our strategy in verse 18, saying, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication or prayers for the saints. And so we pray. We pray and depend upon the Lord and as he supplies for our needs. We say, give us today our daily bread. We go directly to him in private prayer and in corporate prayer, knowing that he alone gives us the strength that we so desperately need for this battle. And so in ancient Ephesus, all of this would have been clear to the Christians there. Do not succumb to the temptations to return to pagan cultic worship. Regardless of how much pressure they they would have faced, they knew that this was their calling to not do this even though they were under pressure from friends and family to return to the to the ways of their world they were told not to do so they were reminded here then that Christ is far far more powerful than the evil powers which they had formerly served these these powers which had enticed them to have worshiped them, thinking that through worshiping these powers that they would be protected from misfortune or from bad luck, that their fates would be protected. And while the times have certainly now changed for us, we still live in a world, as the song we sang this morning reminds us, this world with devils filled. From the vantage point of Orthodox Christianity, it's foolishness to think otherwise, Though in many ways the spiritual forces of darkness have largely, I think, rebranded themselves and no longer present themselves to us in explicitly religious garb, they are no less religious and spiritual than the powers of the pre-modern world of cults and temples. They still operate in very much the same way today, though they do so under different titles and names, tempting and luring God's image bearers to place their trust and their value, their hope in the things of this world. All things that may seem good, but are ultimately not God himself. In the ancient world, the vast majority of society thought pagan occultism was a virtuous, good thing. They encouraged one another to participate. It was a part of their civic duties. It was the way that the society was structured. And so the story of the riot in Ephesus recorded back in Acts 19, where Paul uh, got in trouble with the silversmiths who made the silver idols of Artemis, the goddess of Ephesus, This all bears this out because they were riding out of civic love and virtue and protecting Artemis. And they were quickly worked up into a fit and sought to kill Paul, all the while thinking this is good and right. And we are supposed to be doing this. And still today, there are so many forces and pressures beckoning for our total allegiance, our trust, our hope which to society at large may seem good and maybe even virtuous or righteous, but are ultimately not the Lord. See, these are things like money or sexual gratification or power or social progress, you name it. Though it may sound strange, it's important that we recognize then that everything is religious. Everything is spiritual. The modern world, of course, does not want to see things like this. It wants to divide everything, spiritual and unspiritual. It wants to say that what we're doing here this morning, that's spiritual. But what we do when we get home today, unspiritual. Religious TV shows, those are spiritual TV shows. Every other TV show, not a spiritual TV show. Uh, They may say that going to a pastor, that's a spiritual thing to do. But going to a therapist, not a spiritual thing to do. But this is not the view of of the Bible. All of life is deeply charged with spiritual significance. It's all deeply spiritual because it all comes from God. There is therefore no such thing as neutrality. The atheist is no less a spiritual person or a religious person with a religious worldview than a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew. Science is no less a religious enterprise than theology or ethics or the Eucharist. And though the church is the body within which God's spirit uniquely dwells, we ought not to be fooled into thinking that what goes on at banks or what goes on at schools or factories or malls or on our smartphones or our gyms or restaurants or stadiums has nothing to do with spirituality or religion. Humans, remember, are made to worship. Or rather, we are made worshiping. We cannot help but worship and so although we in the modern world no longer have temples for our beloved gods like Artemis, these powerful entities of spiritual darkness, the ones which animated the gods of the power powers in the ancient world, are still with us today, operating and at work. And they seek our worship. They seek our faith. They seek our allegiance to follow them with all of our being. They desire then to tempt us, and to ensnare us in our hearts and our souls and our bodies. And they do so as they wage war against the kingdom of the living God. And so the question then for us is to ask ourselves, O you of little faith, where is your strength? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Where is your comfort? Christian, your answer may be, ever and always, only one thing. In Christ. In Christ. For as Paul told us all the way back in chapter 1, when he encouraged the Christians of Ephesus, Paul told us these words, that God has now seated Christ in the heavenly places where he now sits, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named in the ancient ritualistic magic prayer books, not only in this place, but also in the one to come, or in this age, excuse me. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray.